We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today, if you want to go ahead and get there in your Bibles or on your phone. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. So this is the fourth message in our series looking at growing up. What does it mean to be a part of the body of Christ and maturing towards Christ, who is the head? And so the very first week, we looked at the body of Christ and what it means to be a member in the body of Christ. And then two weeks ago, we looked at what it means to serve and why we here at First Baptist New Orleans believe that serving is such a key function of being part of our body. And then last week, Trey spoke to us on the value in the Word of God and how it is through the Word of God that we as a church move forward according to the direction that the Word of God lays out for us. And today, we're going to be looking at the gospel, which seems pretty simple, but in reality, many of us toss around that word, but we don't always reflect on what it actually means. And so what I love about our passage today is Peter is preaching a sermon to some Jewish people, and not only does he share the gospel with them, but he unpacks for us the different elements that comprise the gospel of Jesus Christ. So beginning in verse 22 of chapter 2. This is what Luke records for us. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Four tenets of the gospel clearly laid out in this passage by Peter today, and I want to share them with you. Number one, the gospel is initiated by God. As Peter begins this sermon, he addresses it to the men of Israel. But he wants to make sure on the front end that everyone he is speaking to understands that it was according to the plan and foreknowledge of God the Father that Jesus would come in the flesh among humanity. This was not God's plan B. This was not a reaction to the fall of man in Genesis 3. God knew from the beginning of time that Jesus was the solution to humanity's sin problem. So we don't need to act as if God made a mistake and he sends Jesus to react to that mistake. No, from the very beginning, from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus was always the solution to our sin problem. Genesis, Exodus, Kings, Ezra, Proverbs, Malachi, every single Old Testament book points you to Jesus. Let's take the book of Leviticus the book that every one of us in this room that has read struggles to get through. In our daily Bible reading plans, let's be honest, we sometimes skip over the month of Leviticus. But as you read that book, what you see is that there are so many sacrifices that the Israelites are expected to make to God. There are so many laws that they're expected to follow. And unless you understand the significance of Jesus in the New Testament, the book of Leviticus will make no sense to you. Because what Leviticus shows us is that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the one who was able to keep the law perfectly that you and I will never be able to keep. Paul himself tells us in Romans, the whole point of the law was to point you to Jesus. To show you that you are incapable of living the perfect life that somebody had to come and do it for you. And Jesus came in the flesh for you. And for me, because he loves us. And this was all orchestrated according to God's sovereign plan. It was initiated by God. So we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus came, lived that perfect life on our behalf. And then Peter talks about King David. Now this would make sense because we know as a Jewish person, King David is revered. He is the ultimate king. He is the one that was respected and loved by every Jewish man and woman. But Peter says something interesting here about David. He says, you can go and find David's tomb. And his body is in that tomb. But did you know for over 2,000 years, people have been looking for the body of Jesus. And they will continue to look for the body of Jesus. But here's the reality. They will never find the body of Jesus in his tomb. Because he is not there. He has risen. And he is seated now, as Peter tells us in this passage, at the right hand of God the Father. And this was all initiated by God the Father. 
The gospel is not just about Jesus. The gospel is about every single part of the Trinity. God, Jesus, Spirit. And then we see, number two, that the gospel is the sending of the Spirit of God. Now, earlier in Acts chapter 2, the believers receive the Spirit of God. It's the story of Pentecost. And the Spirit of God leaves heaven and it comes on Jesus while He is on earth. And then when Jesus ascends back to heaven, He tells His disciples to wait because I'm going to send you My Spirit and it's coming to live inside of you. And so as Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father in Acts 2, He sends His Spirit on the believers and they are forever changed. Did you know that the same Spirit of God that is in these apostles and in these disciples in Acts 2 is the exact same Spirit of God that resides in you, Jesus follower? Sometimes I think we forget. Sometimes I think we think that what is happening in Acts chapter 2 is not possible anymore. But it's the exact same Spirit that lived in Peter and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas that lives in you today. If we were to be honest with each other this morning, so many times we undercut the Spirit of God working in the world. Part of the reason we do this is because of what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls, we live in a society that is now buffered. And what that means is a large portion of the world is cut off from the supernatural. They don't believe that the Spirit of God is working. Whereas 500 years ago, regardless of if you were a believer in Jesus Christ or not, you had this belief in the supernatural. You had this belief that God was orchestrating things into the world. But now as we moved farther and farther away from that, and we've become more and more of a secular society, many of us have Christians have unintentionally forgotten that the Spirit of God still works. I'm reading a book right now called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And it's a scary read. But one of the points the author makes in that book is that phones cause us to be easily distracted. Now, we already knew that. We've talked before about how our attention span is now shorter than that of a goldfish. The goldfish is seven. We're at six. Okay, so we know that our phones distract us and we get easily pulled away from what we're doing. But the point that the author makes in this book is that we actually want to be distracted. You see, it's much easier to pull that phone out of our purse or out of our pocket and begin scrolling through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram than it is to think about the heavier things. How our neighbor, coworker, family member doesn't know Jesus how we have people in our body right now who are dealing with cancer and major illnesses. It's just so much easier to get lost in the things that don't actually matter by picking up our phone and beginning to scroll. There are so many ways that we in the 21st century can fall prey to quenching the Spirit of God alive in the world. We have to challenge ourselves and discipline ourselves to eliminate the distractions and to focus on the Spirit of God working. The way that you stay connected to the Spirit of God is very simple. 
You stay in the Word of God, and you dialogue with God through prayer. If you do those two things, the Spirit of God will speak to you. You will begin to see God doing things in your life through His Spirit, because the Word of God teaches us that the Spirit speaks to us when we're in the Word and when we're talking with God. And these early believers understood that so well. They had prayer meetings where they prayed for hours upon hours upon hours for those around them that didn't know Jesus, for their loved ones who were sick. And we see that God added thousands and thousands of people to the church of Jesus Christ because they were open to the Spirit of God working. Not only is it initiated by God, not only is it the sending of the Spirit of God into our hearts, the gospel cuts us to the heart. I love that phrase that Luke uses because that's exactly what happened to me. When Jesus saved me, he cut me to the heart. He made me realize that there is no other way that I could receive the free gift of forgiveness except through Jesus. These men who were receiving this message were cut to the heart, Peter tells us. They were convicted because they knew that they had a sin problem. And the only way that sin problem could be taken care of was through believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. That is the crux of the gospel message. Have you been cut to the heart? Many of you in this room have been cut to the heart. And if you have forgotten that moment, I would challenge you to rediscover how important that moment is in your walk with the Lord, that you can look back and remember the day when Jesus saved you, when he cut you to the heart. There are some of you in here who have never been cut to the heart. And I would beg you to do what verse 38 tells us. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now what that verse is communicating is that we repent, which has a precondition that we acknowledge that we have a sin problem. That we acknowledge that we are not born good, but we are actually born bad. We are born evil. Now I learn this more and more as my children get older. Because I realized that I never once had to tell any of my children how to do the wrong thing. They naturally know how to do it. You, as grandparents or parents, you remember. You never had to teach anyone how to do the wrong thing. Ever. It's teaching them how to do the right thing. That is our job as parents and grandparents and authority figures. We have to acknowledge that we are not born good, that we are born sinful, and that Jesus is the only solution to that sin problem. Now here's the reality. It's difficult sometimes to get people to acknowledge that they're sinful. That's not a popular word in our culture today. People don't want to be told that they're bad, that they've done horrible things, but the reality is the gospel of Jesus Christ does not allow us to skirt around that issue. We must repent of our sin and acknowledge that Jesus is the answer to that sin. 
You see, it's not that we follow Jesus because it makes us a moral person. We don't follow Jesus because he gives us social standing in the community. We don't follow Jesus because he promises us health or wealth or happiness. In fact, the more you dig into the Gospels, you see that that is the exact opposite of what Jesus promises. He promises none of those things. You will experience as a Christian heartache and sickness and sadness. But you will also experience eternal life. And that is what sets Jesus apart from every other religion. Every other religion teaches you that you have to earn your way. That you have to be a good person. That you have to give lots of money to the church. That you have to be baptized. And what Jesus says is, receive the forgiveness that only I can offer you. Now there's only a couple weeks left. And so I have to get in as many Tim Keller quotes as possible. So look at this one, one of my favorites. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I wish I could write quotes like that. Here's the deal. The good news of Jesus Christ, it seems so simple, and it is that simple. It seems too good to be true, and it is too good to be true. It seems like Jesus is too gracious, too loving, too merciful, too forgiving, and yet he is all of those things. That is what the gospel promises us. Have you been cut to the heart? As Luke writes here. And then number four, the gospel is a promise for all of us. Now, Peter makes it clear that this is a promise not just for you, but for your children, for your grandchildren, for your great-grandchildren, for your parents, for your grandparents, for your great-grandparents. But it is not just a promise for you. It is a promise to everyone who is far off from you as well. That means the man who lives in the remote Indonesian village who has never even heard the name of Jesus. That promise is for him. The woman who lives in the Himalayan mountains and who is praying to false gods and ancestors to save her, that promise is for her. That promise is not just for the wealthiest 1% of us who live in America. And if we think that, we are missing the gospel at its core. It is our job as the most privileged, the most resourced country in the world to utilize our resources to reach the over 7,000 people groups who have still never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. We will be held accountable for that. So we exhaust all of our resources. We pray. We read the Word of God. We get intentional about reaching people that don't know the gospel. Whether that be your neighbor, your coworker, your family member, somebody you work out with, everyone needs to hear this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But gospel movements only happen when God's people are intentional about making it happen. These things don't happen by accident. When the people of God get serious and intentional about reaching out 
to those around them, not only who live next door, but who live all the way across the world, we see God working in a miraculous way. This text tells us that 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. Now, that's impressive, but I actually want to take that one step further. It's pretty awesome that 3,000 people came to faith in Christ, but what I want to show you is that according to what the Gospel of John tells us, we are capable of more. Look at what John 14 tells us. This is Jesus talking to us. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. What did Jesus just say? He said that what you will be able to accomplish, because the Spirit of God lives in you, will be greater than what I am able to accomplish. Did you pick up on that? You will be able to accomplish greater things than Jesus did. How is that possible? Because his Spirit lives in you to do so. 3,000 souls added to the church of Jesus Christ is not something that can no longer happen. It can happen today, here, in this city, in this state, in this world, because the Spirit of God resides in us. It is fitting that Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father. Because He knows through being next to his father and empowering his believers with the Spirit of God, that they can then go and reach the masses for Jesus. Now Jesus is going to return one day, and he's going to take all of us who are in Christ with him. But until he does, what John is telling us here, what Jesus was telling his disciples in John 14 is, that you are capable of doing what I did. Do we actually believe what Jesus is saying here? That the Spirit of God in us gives us everything we need to reach people with the gospel. That is the message. The good news of Jesus. Every one of you in this room knows somebody who is going through life trying to earn their way, trying to keep up appearances in church, keeping up appearances, doing charitable things, being nice to other people, and those are all great things. I'm not telling anybody to leave here and be a jerk. But those things will not make you right with God. We must freely accept the gift of salvation. And as we go and we share the gospel with people around us, we want to make sure they understand that they bring nothing to their salvation other than their response to what Jesus has already done on their behalf. You don't have to keep up appearances. You don't have to go through a checklist. You freely accept the gift of salvation that is only possible through what Jesus did on the cross. That is the gospel. Anytime we try to add anything to it, we are becoming heretics. So Peter 
calls these people here a crooked generation. And what he means by that is there were many people who refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And even after Peter finished this sermon, there were many, I'm sure, that walked away that day that refused to still believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet, in spite of that crooked generation that Peter describes here, the Spirit of God worked in the hearts of 3,000 people. I believe that that is still possible. That if we, as a church of Jesus Christ, relied on the Spirit of God, got serious about how He works in the world, we could see a movement of God like we see here in Acts chapter 2. It's still possible today. And Peter gives us here a very crisp, concise account of what the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is. Pray with me this morning. God, we thank you for the boldness of Peter and how he goes to a people and he tells them they need to know you. God, I pray for that same boldness for us. That we could tell those around us the most important thing that has ever happened to us. So right now, I ask that you would lay on our hearts people that we know that need to know Jesus. Neighbors, co-workers. And that this week, we would just prioritize having a conversation with those people. And clearly explaining what it means to follow after you. God, help those of us in this room who are followers of you to never forget when you cut us to the heart, when you saved us from our sin. May we reflect on that and praise you for all that you've done for us. We love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.